0: Hi, everyone. I'm Kyle Boucher, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. This week on the AAF Exchange, we'll discuss the job market, concerns over inflation, and proposed changes to tax policy with AAF President Douglas Holtz-Sagan. Doug, thanks for joining us.
1: My pleasure, Kyle.
0: Happy to be here. So before we get into things, since we're both sports junkies, we have to comment on the NHL playoffs that are happening right now. Did you know this is probably will be the first time since I started working here that a New England team could potentially play a Pittsburgh team in the playoffs? I realize this and it's going to be a real shame for those Bruins. uh, But, you know, (laughs) what to do to win the Stanley Cup? (laughs) We, of course, have to still win our first matches. But, you know, I'm I'm looking forward to some good office rivalry here. We haven't had enough of that
1: by sticking in the halls, okay? Let's just...
0: <laughs> <laughs> I promise I will not check you into any of the bullpen walls over here. But anyways, let's jump into today's topic. The April jobs report showed that only 266,000 jobs were added last month. But the Department of Labor estimates that US businesses have a record 8.1 million job openings. What's going on? Why aren't people who lost jobs during the pandemic jumping back into the labor market?
1: Well, we we don't know for sure. But remember, this pandemic is not your traditional recession. This is real constraints on the supply side. You can't safely supply restaurant meals, for example, in the absence of vaccinations and, and ways of combating the coronavirus. And throughout the economy, we've had this big supply problem. And in particular, we have people who have been unwilling to go out and risk infection. And so some of that may still be true. We've had closures of schools and daycares, and thus we have parents with responsibility for school-aged children, and that could be impediment to getting people back. But we have also done some things on the policy side, which uh, probably unwise, and, and that's to have the regular state unemployment insurance uh, system and then supplement it at the federal level with two really important things. Number one, we, we waive the requirement that you actually be seeking work in order to receive UI so people could just not even try to get a job and, and get uh, uh, some support. And then we also added $300 a week to the, the UI benefit uh, from the federal government, and that will last until Labor Day. And so that's a very, very hefty bump in, in the, the amount of UI. And I've been concerned about that from the beginning. Other people have as well. Uh, Isabel Soto, who does uh, labor at AAF, estimates that about 37% of workers would make more collecting UI than they would have back in their previous job. And so that's a big number. Yeah. And in terms of like, like the economics of this, um, there's a, a large literature that looks at the relationship between how long people stay unemployed and the, quote, replacement rates on their wages. What fraction of their usual earnings does UI replace? We're now in, in over 100% replacement rate territory. That's off the charts. It has to have some impact, question is how big
0: right right so let's go through some of those issues um you mentioned the child care issue briefly there in a recent dish you noted a study from uh, jason Furman and others uh, that asked how much have child care challenges slowed the u.s job market recovery what did that study find
1: i am among those who thought this had to be a big deal i think jason and in, in one of his blog posts said you know they went expecting to find out the child care thing was a big deal it turns out that in the data it's not a big deal that if you look at similar people, so you find someone of a particular age, you find them uh, with a, um, uh, education and maybe in a sector of the economy, whatever it might be, and you look with and without children, you would expect that the people with children would drop out quicker, stay out longer, go back slower, however you want to characterize it. It's not true. It turns out they they dropped out less or going back quicker and especially not true for women. So. The thing that we thought would would make sense uh, is not in the data which is a good lesson always check the data before you um, sort of get committed to something and so now you're, you're doing the process of elimination like what's left well there's the 300 and and the search requirements some governors 21 so far have concluded that's the problem and they're going to opt out of the, the federal um supplement and the uh, and reinstate the search requirement that you'd be looking for a job so we'll, we'll actually have in a, a couple of months, you know, a comparison in those states that did and those states that did not waive that and learn something from that. It, it could also be true that there, there's still fear of infection, probably associated with, you know, rapid transit and things about going to work and getting from work, if not on the job, per se
0: hmm Sticking with the childcare issue for a moment, what does that study mean for for policymakers who are looking to get people back to work? As we've talked about on this podcast before, like we both expected this to be an issue. So how should they think about this?
1: Well, the interesting thing is that there are two kinds of issues associated with um, childcare and generally family-friendly policies. One is the, well, we've got to get people who had a job and were working back to work. And that was in the uh, American Rescue Plan, the sort $1.9 trillion thing. There was money for child cares in there. And there was, you know, that was that was intended to, quote, get people back quickly. And that doesn't seem to be working, so it must be something else. We continue to pursue that mystery. Um, second thing is, uh, oh, there's a lot of the American Jobs Plan, American Family Plan that you've heard out of the administration that really is about a constellation of, of benefits that are intended to make it easier to work and have a family. So that's paid leave. That's some child care money to, to build child cares and supplement it. Uh, there's a child tax credit. There's a earned income tax credit for men. You know, there's some, some things out there that are about that. And that's intended to raise not just the back to where we were, but to actually raise labor force participation by women. It's an open question now whether you want to go down that road, I think. Hmm. Um, you know, it hasn't been uniformly successful in other countries. Mixed record. Uh, it's obviously very expensive and a big deal. Um, so So we'll see how that plays out.
0: Yeah, one of the things we'll be watching throughout the summer I imagine would, as you mentioned, the American Family Plan becomes legislation and makes its way through Congress. You also mentioned the UI benefits here. You said that, you know, many Republican governors are pointing to the $300 federal pandemic UI supplement as one of the key problems, and I think you said 21 governors at this point have basically done away with opted out of it, arguing that it's, you know, making it more lucrative for them just to stay home from work than than go back to work. How much of a problem is this? Again, we we don't know. We don't have the number that says, you know,
1: of the 8 million who are long term unemployed and and we're concerned so deeply about um, 3 million of them, it's the benefit. But but it's, you know, it's 37 percent of workers who are at risk. That's a big number. Um, And the labor force participation rate just went back to where it was at the beginning of the recession we'd have another 4.4 million workers out there in the labor force trying to fill those 8.1 million jobs that we have. So, um, that that's a big deal, right? So you know, that that's sort of half of the job openings that are, that are potentially out there. And so I think it, it's worth thinking hard about. I mean, if it hadn't been a pandemic, we would never have done this. And so the less it looks like a pandemic, the less appropriate this is right. And as we, you know, see cases drop and we we serve sort of are returning to normal in so many ways, we should normalize labor market policies. And if we don't, we run a real risk.
0: Yeah. The argument you often hear from the left after got the Republican governors had started doing away with this has been, you know, we did see strong leisure and hospitality numbers, which means those workers are returning regardless of those extra UI dollars. What, what do you make of that argument?
1: Um, it's selective. I wouldn't um uh, bet on any single month's data, you ne- should never do that, or single sector. You know, If you can make that argument across the board in retail, leisure and hospitality, uh, other places where we saw sort of big layoffs, health would be another one. And if they're all returning at a very strong rate, then something else is going on. But that's not what's going on in the data. So we just have to keep an eye on it.
0: Yeah. Like you said, keep an eye on things because, you know, we're going to find out we have these 21 states that have opted out. So we're going to see the differences and see if people are returning back to work in those states and then be able to compare it to the states that, that continue to stick with this program.
1: And one of the things that's worth just, you know, reminding everyone is you should never believe one month's data. The, the data are notoriously volatile and noisy in, in the best of circumstances. They're especially difficult to interpret right now because we really have two economies. We have the pandemic affected sectors of the economy, the leisure and hospitality is the poster child for that. We have other sectors of the economy, streaming services that have never been better. And um, so when you get the data, you're always trying to parse out, you know, where's this coming from? Whereas usually if everything's just sort of growing or not growing, you have a uniform read on things. It's much it's, it's more difficult right now.
0: Yeah, the streaming economy definitely has never been better. I was just talking to Gordon <laughs> the other day about how, uh, you know, we've been, cycling through the same shows over and over again and you know every Friday on our end of the week uh, team chat that we do happy hour I guess we could call it where uh, you know we always ask what are we all watching this weekend so you mean streaming services have never lost anything and throughout this that's for sure (laughs) so what about the balance here in terms of what policymakers should be doing with the UI benefit what should congress do what should state governors think be thinking about and what's the right balance here so for me, as I said, if we had a recession, we didn't have
1: the, the public health aspects of it, we, we wouldn't have had this this $600 benefit, which is how it started out, which really was enough to get people to just stay home. And that was a pure public health move. None of that would be present. So we'd be, we'd be saying, okay, we're just gonna use the state UI system that we know and love and, and support the people who, who need it. And that would be appropriate. Well, the closer we get to that, the closer we should be to exactly that policy and that what that says to me is don't hang on to this benefit benefit till labor day phase it down right and going from 300 to, to getting rid of it is what the governors have chosen to because that's all they really can do but federal policymakers could say no yeah, you're right too big our bad um we're, we're going to go to 200 next month then we're going to go down and just step it down so that it goes away at labor day but as the you know economy comes back it recedes that's the right way to do it
0: Yeah, I think that's a key point, you know, with governors not being able to pare it down on their own. You know, they need Congress to give them that flexibility rather than just yank it all at once. Right. You know, another hot topic making its way around is, uh, of course, inflation. So let's turn to that for a moment. Is this just a result of massive federal government spending proposals or enacted plans? And is this inflation threat big, small, short term, long term?
1: So it's a combination
0: of uh,
1: the Federal Reserve being extraordinarily loose, Remember, they've got interest rates at zero. Uh, They are consciously going out and buying $120 billion worth of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, so that when they do that, they're pumping money into the economy. And they have these lending facilities where if you need to get your hands on some cash, you give them some corporate paper or something, uh, you can get the cash for it. So they are essentially buying everything in sight Uh, to get money into the economy so that that's a a monetary push that they they set in place early in 2020 and and they have maintained over on the the fiscal side um they did things that made sense in 2020 the cares act and at the end of the year the consolidated appropriations act 900 billion Um, dollars. those were appropriately sized appropriately timed pretty well designed to support the economy but 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 that's it you know sort of support it, but not overdo it. The The 1.9 trillion American rescue plan is just too much. I mean, it's uh, $2 trillion essentially spent in one year. That's a huge overspend. And um, the only question is how much, um, you know, my estimates are, you know, needed to be something like 200 billion at top. So that's 100, 1.7 in overspend, whatever you, whatever you come up with, it's a big one. And you, you expect it to have some impact, right? You, you can't just avoid that. I've been focused on asset price inflation so you, you send out all those stimulus checks for example uh what we saw in the data is that the u.s saving rate went to 21 percent in the first quarter that's just off the charts by u.s savings usually six or seven percent so that means they have got the money in an account somewhere it's probably not making a lot in the local savings lower bank so you might stick it into the stock market or you might decide to hey we got a down payment let's go buy a house and if you look around, you, we see asset prices going up. House prices are rising faster than since the housing bubble. We've seen equity markets just skyrocket. We've seen cryptocurrencies skyrocket. They're now starting to come back down some. So I think that was the first wave. Then there's a question, does it show up in consumer price inflation? And if you start looking through the supply chain, you see evidence that it's coming. Um, you know, the, the asset prices are up, then you look at commodities like oil, uh, they're up. You look at um, construction costs way up. Uh, you look at the producer price indexes. They're, they're, they're uh, aiming north. The only place that hadn't really shown up as uh, a big uptick in inflation was core consumer prices, non-food, non-energy. That makes next because the last um, uh, uh, inflation report showed a sharp uptick in inflation. Um, there's a, just a sort of mini debate about how much of it's sort of special factors. And I think there are some special factors. So we've had a chip shortage, which has gotten a lot of attention on the ability to, to sell cars. People want to buy cars. Well, suddenly the, the price of, of used cars and trucks just goes up 10% in a month. That's, that's unbelievable. And you also see rental cars go up, same, same phenomenon. So put that aside. Then you have some things which are clearly recovery from the pandemic, sort of getting back to n- normal airline ticket prices up 10% in one month. Our favorites, sports um, tickets, right? If you want to go to the arena, up 8% in a month. Things like that are clear reopening phenomenon, One probably more one time in nature. So, so that report was not good, but that's not one that panics me. Under, underneath it, though, you, you do want to keep an eye on this because there, there's all sorts of evidence of inflation pressure building.
0: Mm-hmm. What are you watching for in terms of response? I mean, the Fed response to the consumer price index report that came out last week. What What are you watching for in terms of what they could do and what that means going forward?
1: The, the Fed's tendency is to lay the groundwork well in advance and to signal what they're going to do. So uh, the minutes from the most recent FOMC, Federal Open Market Committee, the policymaking body of the Fed, the their most recent meeting, the minutes came out uh, yesterday, and it showed some governors raising the issue that they might in the future want to talk about, maybe talking about getting rid of this extraordinarily you know, loose monetary policy. So that was enough to, to have investors go, oh, my God, they might, they might switch at some point. And, and we saw the reaction. So that's, that's the beginning, right? I, I think the Fed has made a strong commitment that they're going to let inflation go up. And, and until they see it go up, they're, they're not going to move. Well, I think that's
0: going to happen quicker than they planned.
1: And they ought to be starting to get ready to, to, to move.
0: Could this impact uh, the Biden administration's agenda as it's trying to get, you know, an infrastructure bill through Congress and the American Family Span and other items that they want to get through Congress? Could it impact their ability to get this done? Sure, because um, uh, if, you, if you look at the
1: last major inflation the U.S. had in the, in the 70s and early 80s, um, it was the product of, of running the economy extremely hot and running deficits for six straight years at the end of the 60s, 20, you know, sort of 24 straight quarters. We were above full employment. It was it was just you know overheating the economy. Well, if you look at their their plans, they have all these big spending plans and they have some very unpopular ways to to go about and pay for them. I'm sure they're gonna be tempted to just borrow the money. Well then now you're promising to run the economy hot for the next 10 years. Well you're promising uh, inflation. People are gonna balk at that.
0: Yeah. All right. So let's end our conversation today on the Biden administration's proposed tax hikes. Uh, to pay for all this new spending. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act made a number of changes to move us away from taxing worldwide income and towards a system taxing the territorial income of firms outside the U.S. Could you give us the highlights of what the TCJA's reforms did and then explain their impacts? Sure. I mean, if you roll the clock back to 2016,
1: the U.S. had the highest corporate rate in the developed world at 35%. And it was the last major economy uh, that clung to taxing worldwide income. And so if a U.S. firm and a German firm were competing in Brazil, the German firm paid the Brazilian tax and they were done. The U.S. firm paid the Brazilian tax and then would owe a second layer of tax up to 35% uh, because of the U.S. system. Well, that put the U.S. firm at an immediate tax disadvantage. Now, as, as it turned out, uh, we got a, had a little workaround, which is you don't pay the second layer of tax until the money actually comes back to the United States. So you could avoid it and and maintain a level playing field in in, uh, in competition as long as you didn't send the money back. That just meant our most successful firms were parking literally trillions of dollars offshore to avoid that that liability, and so that that wasn't a particularly good idea. And then, as it turned out, anytime there was a cross border merger or acquisition, U.S firm bought a foreign firm or vice versa the accountants would run the numbers and they'd be like hey we shouldn't be headquartered in america you have the highest tax rate in the world and you pay worldwide let's put the headquarters somewhere else and in the 15 years leading up to tcja we lost 100 headquartered firms the largest most successful uh, firms in the economy well by going to the essentially the same tax system everyone else had a 21% rate put us in the middle of the pack in terms of rate wise moving toward a more territorial system you know um, uh, put us on a more level playing field. That just stopped instantly. We, we we haven't lost a firm since. There was one firm that was in the process of leaving and left in January, 2018. It's come back. So like we've lost nobody. And so it's worked. And and the combination of things that the Biden administration has promised to do, put the rate up to 28%. Again, that gets us out of line with our competitors who have all cut their taxes since 2017. They want to tax worldwide uh, income again called a global minimum tax at 21%, but that's what it is. Um, and they're, they're, and by itself, that just puts us back in the, the world I just used to describe, and so we're, we're going to have problems. Their solution was to try to get everyone to agree to have a global minimum tax of 21% so we wouldn't be out of line because everyone would be attacking. And the Europeans have pol- told us to drop that, right? So that's yeah. not going to work.
0: Um, Yeah, I saw the British uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer talking on Bloomberg, I think it was the other day. Like, that's just not going to happen in so many words. (laughs) So, I mean, we started talking about the proposed changes from the administration. What would the economic impacts of these changes be, especially as we're coming out of the pandemic? Inversions, obviously, are part of this. I think
1: there are there are two different things. Number one, there's the they signal a willingness to do some things which are not uh, in the interest of growth And, and people start registering that right now as we're trying to recover, and that's an impediment to recovery. But their real impact is intended to be past the recovery, when we're back to full employment, to change the way we're doing business. And, and those changes are anti-growth changes. They, they tax the returns to saving investment innovation much more heavily. Uh, there are big taxes on family businesses and, and uh, small businesses. Those, you can't insulate, people under $400,000 from the impact of those tax increases. They keep wanting to say, oh, we're only taxing people, you know, above $400,000. And so we've had this conversation, only three-tenths of a percent of Americans would pay higher capital gains taxes. Yeah, but 62% of capital gains would be taxed at double the rates they used to be. So a huge amount of economic activity will be taxed much more heavily. Uh, that, that's a negative from the point of view of long-term economic growth. And it's a negative for everybody. It's not
0: isolated. Gotcha. Well, we'll have to leave it there. So, Doug, thank you for joining us on the podcast again this week. And I look forward two weeks to our next conversation. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.